Hello, and welcome to season two of the Prima Donna podcast. My name's Nat Grant. I'm a Melbourne-based composer and sound artist. To find out more about the podcast series, visit primadonnapodcast.com. The fifth portrait, the second in this series, is of dancer, choreographer and educator Shirley McKechnie. Shirley founded the first tertiary dance course in Australia in the 1970s at Rusden, now Deakin University. She gave her premier performance with the Australian Ballet when she was in her 60s. She's now in her 90s. Shirley is a prolific researcher and has some really interesting things to say about the way Australians dance. All right. Yes, good. Is that going to be okay? I think so. Just check. Can you start at the beginning? Yes. I read that you started dancing when you were four. Yes, that's right. <laughs> How did that come about? Oh, my mother, my mother thought that um, uh, physical culture would be the thing that would help me become whatever she wanted to me. My father had been a gymnast, so he, he was in favour of me doing physical culture. And physical culture was a lot of exercises. Plus you did a lot of things with dumbbells and rods and, and you posed nicely, you know. <laughs> and that, of course, grew into a love of dance and movement and because we did a lot of folk dancing in association with that. And then eventually I had a cousin who was taking ballet lessons and... What she was doing looked exciting, so I was allowed to start ballet lessons when I was about 10. And then when I was about 12, 13 or 14 maybe, my dance teacher said to my mother, she's much too tall to be a ballerina, would she like to be a showgirl? And my, I was then about five foot eight, you know, I'm a little shorter now. And my mother was so shocked, she had me out of that dance studio very quickly. And then I discovered shortly after that that there were two young women in Melbourne teaching an extraordinary form of dance called creative dance or contemporary dance or modern dance. Everybody called it by a different name. But they were Jewish refugees from Vienna and they'd escaped before Hitler walked in. I'm talking about early 40s, early 1940s, when I was a young teenager. And uh, so I went to learn from them and they had this wonderful technique and wonderful dance that they brought to, to Melbourne uh, from Central Europe, from Austria, from Vienna. And Madame Bodenwieser, Gertrude Bodenwieser, was their teacher, and she had been a professor of choreography at the Academy of Music and Dramatic Art in Vienna. And uh, one of the dance, one of my teachers had been on tour with Bodenwieser in South America when Hitler marched into Vienna, and none of them could go back to Vienna because many of them were Jewish. They came to Australia. Bodenwieser herself went to Sydney and my two younger teachers came to Melbourne where one of their parents had settled. And that's how I started in, away from ballet into contemporary dance. Hmm. But it suited me down to the ground. I loved it. it was, you know, I was, we had people playing for class who'd been concert pianists in Vienna. You go, you'll get you'd appreciate that. <laughs> so that was that was pretty much the start of my my dance, thinking of it in terms of something I might want to continue to do for the rest of my life. I was absolutely smitten and loved it, kept on as long as I could. Mm. I left high school with a year 12 certificate, matriculation they called it in those days, and I, my parents were not all that comfortable. Women didn't go to university much in those days. It was a very, very rare woman who did, but I got a job as I was expected to do, and the job I got was I applied for and got 
uh, a job with the Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works, who was then, you may, I don't know if you recall the name, you're not old enough, but the Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works was the organisation, state government organisation, that ran all the water systems, all the water, you know, right throughout Melbourne and certainly all the, all the irrigated areas around Melbourne. They ran the sewage systems all over Melbourne and I was working with the, the bacteriologist and the biochemist who were running the, one of their laboratories and uh, that gave me the most wonderful... In, and I had done maths and science at high school, chemistry and physics, and to get this job, uh, I not only had to work five and a half days a week, that was, not, that was normal, but I, I, because myself and another girl had replaced two young men who went off in the Air Force. It was wartime, Second World War, the beginning of it more or less, and uh, I had to go to night school to continue my studies, which I did. And at that stage, I did two or three years of chemistry, organic, inorganic, and then organic chemistry at Melbourne, what was then called Melbourne Tech, and is now RMIT University. But later on, much later on, when I was 40 plus a bit, I started another a second degree, and that time at Monash. And that was where I got the qualification. I got a, an honours degree in English literature, basically, and that gave me the qualification that I needed to go on to teach, to start the course at Rusden, to apply for grants from the Australia Council. The Australia Council gave me a grant, which I asked for, to go overseas to see what was happening in dance, in America particularly, because I was at that stage buying the uh, American dance magazine. There wasn't one in Australia. The American dance magazine was detailing all the things that were happening in universities in the dance area. And many of them were returning from the physical culture area, which is where they all started, into the fine arts departments. And the ones that were turning into the fine arts departments or moving themselves into the fine arts departments were enormously successful. And I knew what they were by this time. I had a lot of dance friends and, and uh, I was well advised. And I said I wanted to go to units of the USA to study what was happening in dance and tertiary education in the USA and we know for all the reasons that are obvious dancers were often very highly skilled and qualified to dance professionally when they were 13. I mean the dancers in the Russian ballet who came out here in the 30s were 13 years old. Extraordinary young dancers. So you acquire the skills as gymnasts do when they're very young but no education. That bothered me a lot and I knew it was not going to do anything for dance if dancers continued to be uneducated or didn't have the status that took them to university. I had, had started a school in Beaumaris where we lived, my husband and I lived, and I had two young children by the time I was in my late 20s. And uh, I was bored stiff, you know, with domestic life. Everybody in Beaumaris had gone there just after the, just, you know, in the, in the years immediately after the war because it was being opened up as a new suburb virtually. It had been a, an area of market gardens prior to that and Beaumaris was the new suburb and it was often referred to as the, the land of the junior executive, the, the aspiring junior executives. And women didn't work, of course. And uh, anyway, I eventually started a school there, a dance school. I had about 20 children turn up the first day and in few years time I had more like 350 and uh, they were grew into these gorgeous young people and uh, that was the story of the school and I can't remember why I mentioned the school except that it, it, it enabled me to 
and begin to understand by my reading of the American magazines what was possible in dance, that you could educate dancers, train them at the same time, and, uh, and eventually have an educated dance class who would see to the advance of dance and choreography at its best level. And that's exactly what happened because it had already happened in the States. Martha Graham, whom you may have heard of, was one of the famous pioneers women, as was Ruth St. Dennis, as was Isadora Duncan, and so all of these women had started dance practice in the States and become quite famous. In England it was much more conservative and very much within the ballet world, but the, the movers and shakers there were people like Marie Rombert, who started the Ballet Rom Rombert, and in, in just out of London at the Mercury Theatre, and she had been in practice with Del Crows. And so that whole thing with Laban and Del Crows and Gurdjieff, the educator, Russian educator, uh, was very, very rife in Central Europe and they influenced an enormous amount of the arts activity there and were very influential in the dance area. That's where Laban came from. And that was very influential in England. Uh, it wasn't until quite late in the piece, late 60s, that the, that the English discovered contemporary dance and then it was via a former student of Martha Graham's. So the, the American version of it went to England and that it grew in England over its own, over its own you know, course actually, but a lot of other things had happened via the ballet world in England as well as, including uh, the woman who was Ninette de Belvoir, was the head of the Royal Ballet. She had started what became the Royal Ballet and also the Sadler's Wells Ballet. She influenced people like Peggy Van Praa who was the first artistic director of the Australian Ballet. Peggy, um, I saw when she first came out here, she was brought out by the Elizabethan Theatre Trust to take over the Borovansky Company when Borovansky died. This was the late 50s I'm talking about. And uh, Peggy came out at the behest of the Elizabethan Trust who asked Lynette de Valois if she would send someone. Peggy always said that Lynette sent her to the colonies to get, so she'd get rid of her. <laughs> the daughter of a, a Jewish man uh, who had, his grandfather had come from Holland, the Van Praas, and her grandfather had been a speech therapist in, presumably in Amsterdam, and he'd come out, he'd, he'd been called from England to see to the speech defects of Edward VII. We're talking about the early part of the, nine, of the 20th century. I had seen Peggy speak and I, you know, I was a bit turned off by the Mayfair accent, uh, but she often used to speak after production and so on. And then she became Everett, became very uh, active in starting summer schools, which, which happened at the University of New England in northern New South Wales. And the first of the summer schools in dance was held in 1967, I think. Peggy ran it and it was a course on on ballet and ballet history. I didn't attend it, but I heard all about it. So when there was another one in 1969, which was in the dance of the 20th century, I thought, what does this woman know about dance in the 20th century? I'll go off and tell her a few things. Anyway, I got there and of course I discovered she knew far more than I ever did. <laughs> we became firm friends. And uh, my Peggy, I think I influenced her and she certainly influenced me. And that was a very productive and lovely friendship for many years until she died. Yeah, it was all good. I virtually took over the methodology that I was taught by my 
Viennese teachers. That was the Bowdoin visa technique that Bowdoin visa herself had developed in Vienna over many years. Bowdoin visa's name was well known because she had become second in a very famous choreo international famous internationally famous choreographic competition held in Paris in 1932, I believe, and she'd become she'd, she'd won second prize for the Demon Machine, which was one of her very one of her very well known works, and the one that won the first prize was Kurt Uses. Oh, what was it called? Very famous work. Anyway, it was based it was based on the failure of the League of Nations. And so Bowdoin Visa was already very well known in Europe for her very um, innovative work, basically. And she brought that to Australia. So she was very influential in Australia, as were her two female students who influenced me. So that was the, I mean, I had ballet classes from the age of about 10 to 13 or 14, by which time I've told you I was too tall to be a ballerina. And I took to the modern dance wonderfully, I loved it, but I already had quite a bit of training in my body. And that, that of course, adapts to what you learn that's new. And then, of course, I was, when I started my own school, I was inevitably very influenced by my own very Australian background and everything that I felt was oldie-worldy about the ballet and, and old Europe, and uh, so that my directions were influenced by that. But that was largely subject matter. There's this argument that we have, you know, that musicians have about, you know, is there an Australian sound? Do you think there is an Australian... Yes, I do. And I argued that at one of the, at the speech I gave in honour of... It was the first Peggy Van Praa Memorial Address. She died in January 1990, and in 1991 I gave the, first, I gave the inaugural Peggy Van Praa Memorial Address, and I addressed that in that... that hmm, what I thought was Australian about dance. One of the things, one of the simplistic things I can tell you, but it's simply... It's a very simple example. Everybody knew that when you were in a, in a big studio with a lot of dancers from overseas, Australians took up all the room. They were always there and always using up an awful lot of space and that was frequently commented on. Even everywhere when I went later in Europe, people would comment on the way Australian dancers used the space. And I commented on that you know, quite a bit in that speech. And also on the background to dance in Australia, which was not only the ballet and the new modern dance, but thousands of years of background, if we wanted to notice it, of dancers who'd been there for 60 or 70,000 years, we now know. Hmm. When this great continent, when people come from England and you think that our whole population would fit in London pretty well, and, and you know, there's, there's no space in a sense, and that's that's typical of everywhere I went in Europe and, and America. Big, big studios would be filled with 50 dancers. Now in Australia, you'd be lucky if you had 15. And there's a lot of space to fill up and you use it. It's as simple as that. And it's, you know, I began looking around, but, but I, beca I became aware that it was, you know, I, could, I had seen in America people teaching dance from a platform on which they demonstrated and they would have 20 or 30 students in front of them being taught by one teacher down on a platform at the, at the front. It just seemed crazy to me. You know, it was not this one-to-one -one thing that you find in most studios that are important, and certainly in, in important companies like the Royal Ballet and the New York City Ballet, they, 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 they have what we have, plenty of space and fewer dancers. Mm.
the Russian ballet, of course, has got an awful lot. Well, the Australian ballet has too, but they don't have them all on at once, mm -hmm. nor do they have them all in the studio at once. Did you ever perform with the Australian ballet? Yes, I did, but not until I was, not until I was in my 60s. <laughs> oh, wow. Graham Murphy's version of The Nutcracker. The Nutcracker is a fairy tale, it's a children's story, the original Nutcracker that came out of the 18th century, the 19th century. And the little girl in it who has the dream of the, this wonderful journey through fairyland, basically, is called Clara. And Graham Murphy, it was Graham Murphy's work and he called it Clara's Story. Clara was a little girl who grew up in, Mosque, in Petersburg, was trained in the famous school in Petersburg, became a dancer, was employed, was employed by, to dance for the royal court and she danced for the Tsar and had a, you know, a very nice young man as a partner. And, uh, but then the, the Russian Revolution, the war came, Graham had his own way of depicting this and I'm not going to, you know, diminish his work by trying to explain it to you in this way. You, you have to see it, how it's done on the choreography, but I recommend it if he ever does it again. He's done it recently. And the original, the original work I was in, the, we start the ballet with an, an elderly woman who is Maggie Scott. She was then in her late, her early seventies, and she had been Clara, grown up in post, post Tsarist Russia. She joined the Diaghilev Company. She toured the world. She'd had her life. She'd been in Paris. She'd been in the Middle East. She'd been in London. She'd been in New York. And here she was, finishing out her days, a little flat in Carlton. And then her, her old colleagues from Russian days visit her, and that's the first scene in Graham Murphy's Nutcracker. And I was one of the old colleagues. <laughs> and I think there were four or five of us, something like that. And they were all dancers of my age who'd been, been dancers. And the reproduction of that work that I saw relatively recently, last year in fact, repeated the same thing and two of the original dancers who are the youngest of the elderly ones are still in it they're now in their 80s oh, wow. mm. That's yeah. it is interesting isn't it what other kind of performing did you do as a younger dancer oh i performed in many many productions at the union theater at melbourne university my two my teachers were very familiar with many of the jewish immigrants of the day and melbourne was rich in jewish immigrants who came here to escape europe and uh, they were, many of them were of the university, they were designers and musicians and a couple of the famous people at Melbourne University at that time were musical people. You would know the names but they escaped me momentarily. But the musical people of the period were there and as they had all, a lot of these connections in Melbourne with Jewish people and I met, I met many of them as I've told you. We had former concert pianists paying for cars, for instance, you know, it was extraordinary. And it was my, as an Australian girl growing up in the 1930s, I, I had been, my parents liked light opera and they appreciated Gilbert and Sullivan, but I'd never been introduced to serious theatre or serious music ever. And here it was, it was all there. And we were part of it as part of, part of the ensemble that were taught by these young women. I got on very well in the studio. I was eventually chosen to be part of the dance ensemble that they used for performance. We performed in wonderful gardens around Turak where Jewish people had made a lot of money and were opening their homes to various activities for the war. And I danced right through the war years with that group and mostly at the Newman Theatre, but sometimes I remember one late in the, late in the war, probably about 1943, 44, 
we danced for the troops in the Melbourne Town Hall, stuff like that, you know, that people do all the time. So I had quite a, quite a dance experience, it was good, through my Viennese teachers. But I know that what I taught drew on what they, they taught me. But then as the Graham technique became very well known, we also had a visit from uh, in, uh, in Melbourne from one of the people who'd been in the Graham Company. The first, the first time Graham took her company to England was about 1966-67. And England had the English had never seen contemporary dance ever. This had been going on in America since the First World War days, you know, and earlier. But, um, you know, all of that history was there. And uh, I, was, I became part of that and it was, was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. It must have been very exciting to be right at the forefront of this new... Well, you didn't know it was a... You didn't know it was a new... Well, you sort of knew because the Australian ballet was there and under Borovansky had done very well and was very popular, as it should have been. It was a good company and, and then Peggy took it over and it became even better. And when Peggy took it over, it already had the interest of the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust and there were people in high-end government like Nugget Coombs who were going to see that it got well-funded and they did. And the Australian Ballet, when Peggy arrived out, because, you know, began to get more money and uh, it became the Australian Ballet under Peggy. And when did you move into the tertiary, tertiary dance? I finished my degree at, at, at uh, Monash and I was teaching all the years. I still had my school at Beaumaris for, for quite a few of those years. I had, I had my degree and I was determined to go overseas and see what I could. I had, I had already conceived the idea even by the ni middle 1950s that I wanted to do this down the track to start a tertiary education course for dancers in Australia. Once I'd been to a tertiary education course myself and knew how it worked, well, I was very keen to do it. So that happened when I was in my 40s. I had this vision. But I had, while I was doing my course at Rose that I taught as an extracurricular activity as one does in university. Margaret Lassiker was teaching at Melbourne. I was teaching at Monash through those years and uh, my, keep, kept running my own school. And at the end of my getting my degree, I wrote to something like 10 organisations in and around Melbourne and so on. And I said I had a, academic organisations, I said I had a, um, a, t a university degree and uh, I had these subjects, but I had a long career in dance and I could do this, that and the other thing. Would they like to give me a job? I had two replies from the 10 letters I sent out. One was from the Kindergarten Teachers Training College in Frankston, and one was from Ruston College. The Kindergarten Teacher Training College interviewed me, and it's very hard to believe now, but you understand what I'm saying. They offered me a job as a, a senior lecturer on permanent tenure there and then. And I was interviewed at Ruston. John Ellis offered me a tutorship for a 12 months contract and I took it because it was studio based. I knew that if I got myself into a kindergarten teacher's college it wouldn't go anywhere. I just knew I'd be teaching kindergarten teachers. That wasn't what I had in mind. And uh, so I, I took the job of 12 months as a tutor at Rusden. And John, of course, was keen to expand his empire. And when I said I'd like to write a course for dance, he was all for it, supported me no end. And the whole, you know, the whole department supported me. And in the end, Rusden supported me. And that was how the, the application to be a tertiary education, to be a, uh, have a major in dance, went off to what was then the, the assessment 
to let it become one. Um, it was the State College of Victoria that, that assessed them in those days. Um, you see, I'm forgetting all the appropriate words. You're just interviewing me in time, Nat. <laughs> well, I can still think up the words. Mm. Anyway, it was, it was a credit, accreditation committee is what I was looking for. Accreditation committee. And they accredited it as a full tertiary degree. And the, and the drama students could now do a major in dance if they wanted to. They could do a major in dance and a major in drama. And many of them did. And some of them took film and television as well. And it took them six years to do a degree with three majors. And uh, so that was the first tertiary dance degree in Australia. At the same time, I was on the council of the VCA. I think it started the council in 1972. By 1973, I was a member of the council. 1974, I went overseas. Well, we'll go down and have a coffee? Yeah. Do you fancy that? Yeah. Okay, good. So we were talking, we were talking about Dresden, but we've probably covered. I think so. The course was accredited and started, and as I say, it was the first of its kind in Australia. But I had been in America, and I'd spent so much time at Juilliard. As part of that, I, I was at the University of California in Los Angeles, at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Then I went to Iowa, no, Ohio, uh, to uh, Columbus, Ohio. Then I went to Canada, to the uh, York University in Canada, then back to New York and a long time with Juilliard. And that's where I, I saw all of these wonderful courses, what they were doing. What surprised me was that I expected to go to America and see fabulous dancing in all these places. What I discovered, it was in the, in the tertiary level, they weren't all that good at all. I mean, they were still school students. <laughs> and uh, you know, the, the people in my own company were better than most of the dancers. I, saw, I wasn't looking at professional dancers, mind you. I was looking at students. So that explains it. But even at Juilliard, they weren't better than the student, than the people I had myself in my company. And uh, I was surprised to discover that, because I'd expected quite the reverse. And uh, it was an interest, just an, an interesting little byline to, to add to that. Yes, and we always assume that art and culture and everything is yes, better. Yes, that's right. Yes, overseas, we do. But it's not mm, no, not necessarily. We make great stuff here. Graham Murphy is one of the best choreographers in the world. And he's acknowledged, you know, as a very great choreographer, certainly one of the best ever produced in Australia. And he's very, you know, he's terrific. And I knew Graham when he was quite a young man. And uh, I saw, I worked with him when he was still basically a student. He was very new, new into the Australian ballet. And I'd been, Peggy had run a, a what she called a choreographic workshop. It was just a showing. She talked to the company and said, if any of you have an ambition to make any work, I will arrange that we have a proper showing in the theatre for you. And she did exactly that. It was in the Princess Theatre. And Graham Murphy had done a, a short work. It was probably about 12 or 13, 14 minutes long. And he had four female dancers in it. And I saw this work and several others. And I said to Peggy, that is extraordinary for such a young and inexperienced man. She said, would you like a few company? And I said, yes, I'd love it. And I bought it apparently for $50. I think the record is still <laughs> absolutely ridiculous when you look back on it. And he went on from there and became, well, certainly Australia's top choreographer and one of the, one of the best known in the world. He's very, very well known and very appreciated. And he's still, now he's, he's as old as my oldest son, he's in his late 60s. Do you think that um, you have a sort of a signature style in terms of your, your teaching or your choreography? 
I think I did, but I think it was inherent in me, um, Nat, to follow a creative path. I had parents who were readers. My father was a storyteller. He'd been an adventurous man all his life. He'd been in the First World War. He'd been in the trenches in northern France and Flanders. He had terrible experiences during the First World War. And he came back and he was working as a boundary rider in Tasmania on the hydroelectric scheme in Tasmania when the First World War broke out. And then he came back and went back to that job apparently after the war for a brief period. And he met my mother and they married and that was the, you know, that was the beginning of my story. But um, my father was a great storyteller and a great reader. And I can remember to this day sitting on my father's knee and saying, don't read that one, Daddy, it's too sad. You know, I was a little match girl or something like that, Hans Anderson's story. But I do remember it. I knew the story off by heart and I couldn't bear to hear it again, you know. But my dad was a great reader and my sons have inherited that. I started making dances when I was about 12, I think. <laughs> I remember getting all the neighbourhood kids in on the back, you know, when the days when we all had great big back lawns. I remember getting the neighbourhood kids on and someone would be doing 12 cartwheels around this way, someone would be doing 15 jumps that way and five somersaults somewhere else. And I must have had it in me to organise that. You know, I, I don't remember where that came from. I think from my first physical culture experience, really. And uh, anyway, I certainly developed it under my Viennese teachers because they were, one of them was a very fine choreographer and I was in many of her works and that influenced me greatly. And I suspect she learned from Bodenwieser and other people who influenced her in Vienna. I mean, there are some famous names associated with that Viennese school and with the movement in Central Europe at that time, with Laban and Del Croes and Gurdjieff and what was happening in Vienna with Bodenwieser and Mary Wigman in Germany, people like that. And you know, I, there's almost all of those the names, apart from, from Laban and, and Del Croes, they're all women. So that, that's interesting, isn't it, seeing as you asked me that question earlier in the piece? Yeah. Yes. So you asked me about my own creative drive. I was very driven to say something about, and I only can only put this into words now from, you know, from experience looking back, to say something about my own experience. But I think I was good at finding the metaphor. And uh, I made a, a work that grew out of my own sense of having a great mission, but not having anyone recognise it, and wanting to, you know, give it to the audience. And I made a work out of that, and it's, I called it Earth Song, and made it into a story of a young priestess, or a young aspiring priestess to a great order of women. <laughs> I was very, very taken with Paul Clay paintings, and uh, I had my student, I did, used a lot of improvisation. That was what I learned from my teachers, how to use improvisation. And you know, you can improvise about anything. I remember my, this lass on the end there being, we were all interviewed as a group and she was being interviewed by an ABC reporter all way back, you know, 30, 40 years ago now. And he said to her, but can you dance about anything? She said, oh yes, anything. And he said, what about, what about um, a stone? If I give you a stone, can you make a dance about a stone? And she said, oh yes, she said, a stone has a certain shape, a certain weight, a texture. It takes up this much space or this much. I'm almost repeating a word for word. I know it so well. She was about 12. <laughs> so I think that was what I 
learned, but it was also what I based my work on. on you know, the shape and space and texture and quality and design of space and so on. You know, there's four dimensions. We, I wrote a book during the research. We had an e-book published by MUP and it was called Thinking in Four Dimensions. And uh, it is, you know, height, width and depth and time. <laughs> but the reason it was so interesting was because with an online publication, you can have movement, you can have dancers dancing and all links to a lot of that. And if you're actually writing a, a book, you can only talk about it and show pictures of still dancers. When you can act, actually have them moving, it makes a big difference. And I think that's grown enormously since then. I mean, we're talking about 2005, something like that. And how did you first get into the research? Uh, well, that's interesting. It was had to do with Melbourne University and the affiliation with the college. It was affiliated, the college was affiliated with Melbourne a long time before it came part of Melbourne. And the affiliation was quite strong and the VCA already had access to Melbourne University terminology. That what they were doing in those days, I'm talking back in, I'm talking about 1998-99 because we put the application into the ARC about 1998. So it was already relatively early in the piece but there was already the affiliation with Melbourne. And as a result of that, people used to, were coming down from the university to the VCA and uh, the heads of department were required to attend these meetings on research. We had to find out how to do research because Melbourne was insisting that if the college was going to use its nomenclature for its degrees, they had to do research. And Jonathan Taylor said to me, Shirley, I'm not interested in this. Would you like to go and represent me? I said, oh, yes, I'll do that. So along I went to the first meeting with these researchers for the professors and so on from the university. The first thing I learned was if you wrote a peer-reviewed article, you got five full credit points for the university, which was huge, apparently, big credit. If you wrote a symphony, you got 0.5. I learned that on the first, and dance wasn't on the list, of course. And then after that first meeting, I thought, okay, I'll get it on the list. That's what started me off. <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. With the actual meeting of the Ausdance, it was the Australian Dance Council, had, we were meeting in Perth. It was the first really big um, meeting we'd had from every state in Australia it was the first time they'd met and exchanged ideas you know across the whole continent virtually all the, all the capital cities and that was where I gave that Peggy had died 12 months before and she'd been very instrumental in setting up this, this Australian Dance Council she and I had done most of the work in fact with other people and uh, so I, that inaugural day and Peggy address was part of that that was 1991 as I've told you but I began to write a bit more, quite a bit more through the 90s for people just asked for bits and pieces, which I did. And uh, by late 90s, I was quite, you know, used to it. And uh, I think I had a bit of a talent for writing and putting ideas into, into words. And I even had them in the sciences because when I went to work for the Board of Works, my chief boss was a woman, a woman bacteriologist. They weren't called microbiologists then because they hadn't discovered that they could see viruses. There'd be no electric, electronic telescopes in the 1930s and early 40s. So they hadn't seen viruses. People weren't microbiologists, they were bacteriologists. 
You could see a bacteriologist with an ordinary microscope, a bacteria with an ordinary microscope. And I worked with her, and she was a single woman in her late 20s. I thought she was ancient. I was about 16 or 17, you know. And uh, well, that was all quite interesting, but she was an influential person on me. And then later on, when I developed a, a, a desire to dance more than to go to night school with RMIT, I had uh, taken a job as a model with a company called Prestige, which made a lot of underwear and cloth and clothes of various kinds. And I was supposed to be in charge of their modelling room, but I finished up being a model for the designer. It was just simply my body. I was, a, I was what you call um, average measurements. I was a good um, representative of the average female figure. And so I got to have all the clothes draped on me and cut and pinned and traced. And, and she was a horsewoman. The diner was, was a wonderful woman. She was another big influence on me. So all the women I met were not only talented, highly skilled women, they were very influential in their ability to talk about their subject. And what about Taz Dance? Taz Dance was much later and it came into being as part of the... Um, they it had, a, had a, a ballet company in Tasmania. It was called the Tasmanian Ballet and they had gone a bit sour on the funds and funding and it broke up and I can't remember the reasons behind that but it was put forward that they needed a dance company in Tasmania and they needed a dance education company and a woman I had worked with who'd worked with me at Rusden, she was an American, she'd been in the American Ballet Theatre, she was a dancer, she'd come out here with her husband who was a, an Australian engineer of some degree and uh, she became, she left my, my employment at Rosden and went to work for the Australia Council, became their dance officer for the Australia Council. And she was in, instrumental in setting up this company for Tasmania and she involved me. So I was very involved in, with her, her name was Cathy Lowe, Catherine Lowe, and uh, together we, we virtually put forward the model for what this dance company should be as a dance education company. I used to spend a lot of time preparing my classes because improvisation was such an important part of it. The students loved it. And I think it was because I always spent a lot of time thinking about what would interest me, obviously. And I found, I found inspiration in poems, in paintings, in literature, in all sorts of places, images in all degrees. And uh, so I use a lot of poetry, I use bits of Shakespeare, I used paintings of Paul Clay and many others and this was an inspiration and what do you make it? I can, I can remember one little story to tell you that illustrates it a bit. I'd been, taught, I'd been working with a group of six-year-olds, I think they were, I taught little kids as well as big ones and I'd had that book of Paul Clay one of Paul Clay's paintings is called um, Twittering Machine, The Twittering Machine and it's got, it's a picture of four or five little comic birds sitting on a bar it looks like a little machine where you turn a handle. The twittering machine was one of several. And a, 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 a composer, a German composer called Gunther Schuller, had created a, a work, a musical work called Sketches on Themes of Paul Clay. So I knew what the basic paintings were that he was referring to. And he made, it was a bit like pictures of the exhibition, the Mussorgsky piece back, you know, that had been made 50 to 80 years earlier. And it was pictures, and his was, um, sketches on themes of Paul Clay, not not the sort of paintings that Mussorgsky had done, and uh, one of them was the twittering machine. And I took a I took a copy of the little painting down to the children, and I said, "What do you think of this?" And they all looked at it, and 
I said, what does it make remind you of? And one of the children said, they look like little people, little people with armour on. The birds were kind of had little, had little feather shaped uh, things like, that could have been made of metal, the way they were depicted in the painting. But they were certainly caricatures of little birds dressed in God knows what. And the child, I said, okay, you go, and Jerry was the pianist. I said, you, you take the book and you tell Jerry what sort of music you want. So she picked up the little book and she went over to the piano and she popped the book, it was a big book, you know, painting on one side, story on the other. She put it in front of Jerry and she said, we need some music for a little man dressed in leaves. <laughs> little man. So Jerry played a little man dressed in leaves and the children danced a little man dressed in leaves. Imagination working. <laughs> Yes, but you know, for adult girls, a poem of Judith Wright's, Naked Girl in the Mirror, and it was really about that first dawning realisation that you are growing into a sexual figure. Every young woman experiences it at some level, I did, and I assume everybody else does at some level. You become aware for the first time. That's what the poem is about. You know, I, I, they voted the poem saying, I once ran and laughed and danced on sun and sea and wind with no thoughts of anything but, and then she, the poem finishes up and a man thinks he can make this of me, he's got another thing coming. She put that in poetry. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing, I mean, that sort of poem, I didn't even have to discuss the sexual aspect of it, I only had to give it to them. And they made what they wanted of it. And they did, you know. Well, the research had to have a thread that you could talk about or they wouldn't give you any money to do it. And the, the, first, the first thread was, you know, it came from my own experience of what on earth is this all about? You know, if anybody asked me, how do you choreograph? And the, I was occasionally asked, what do you choreograph and how do you choreograph? And where do the ideas come from? And I thought, my God, what are the ideas? I've got this mess in my head that's part tape, you know, tape around reels. It's part images, it's part poetry in, in books, it's part paintings, it's part the world, the nature, the trees, the world. You know, what's this mess in my head? So the, the, I thought, well, how the hell do I put, the, I want to know what that all was and how it comes out as, a, as a, an image in a dance. And how to put that into words. And finally said, um, you know, what, where does choreography originate in the thinking? What is the, what is the thinking? Therefore, thinking in four dimensions became the title of it. But I had to put, the ideas I've just put to you in such a messy way had to be put in a hundred words. It was all something I, I desperately wanted to do and it just took its own course, you know, from dancing as a little girl, from learning ballet to being introduced to modern contemporary work, to everything that that involved via the best artists in Europe, which is what it was, the influence, influences on that development. And um, then that Bowden visa coming to Australia, my association with Peggy Van Praal and the Australian Ballet and choreographers like Graham Murphy and people, it's all, you know, just proceeded through my life. It's been all steps and stairs when I was ready for them. I was 20 when I started my own school, but I had, I had taught quite a bit before that for my two teachers. They were young women. They weren't much more than 12 years older than I was, 10 or 12 years older than I was. They were in their early 20s. They both married. They both had children. 
But at that stage, they were teaching in places like Furbank and Brighton or Finton or out at Camberwell, wherever it was. And as each of them had their children, they would ask me to take over their classes. So I had quite a wide experience before I started my own school. I took over their classes. They expected me to teach much as they did. I had no trouble doing that because I'd experienced it. And uh, that gave me more experience. The more experience you get, the more confident you become. That's how it is, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Thanks for listening to the Prima Donna podcast. For more information or to subscribe for future episodes, visit primadonnapodcast.com.